Good morning. Good morning. Let's take a class this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit would be with us, that we might see you more clearly. And we are doing lesson number 13, last lesson of our quarter. The title of the lesson this week is Power Struggle. Can anyone give me a definition of evil? What does evil look like, and how do you know what is evil and what is good? Because we're not to imitate it. We're supposed to imitate what is good, so, so we should be able to define it, shouldn't we? Okay, he said selfish over here. Other thoughts? Misleading. Misleading. Jealousy. Okay. Jealousy. Other thoughts? What is evil? Darkness. Okay. Mental darkness. Yeah. Any other ideas? Can you imitate evil acts, but evil itself is a condition? Separation from God or anything that isn't of God. Okay, separation from God or anything that isn't of God, and evil. Um, would evil then be anti-love? Would we say that would be an encompassing statement that eat evil would be anti-love? And, and what would that then result in? What would the outcome of evil be? Death. Death, he says over here. Is love not the foundation of all life? Life is built on love. So then evil is anti-love, and, and, and evil then is whatever would bring or result in death. Are we comfortable with that? In fact, love... The law of life helps us live. Can somebody spell live backwards for me? Evil. Isn't that interesting? Uh, It's an easy way to remember, I think, what what evil is. It's the opposite of living. It's what brings death. So let's, let's look at what kind of things in our world today would constitute evil. And an obvious one is murder, right? Murder would constitute evil. Because it's obviously anti-love. But who does murder bring death to? Oh, yeah, several of you are going, the murderer, the murderer, yes. The murderer is the one who actually dies. You see, Christ said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body. And how? Soul, suke, from we get psyche from. Mind, character, individuality. You see, somebody can kill your body, but they can't destroy your character. But if you perpetrate evil upon someone else, what happens to your character? How about other types of evil in the world? Violence, abuse, rape, are, are, all are evil because they hurt people. But what do such actions do to the perpetrator? their ability to to hear the the wooing of the Holy Spirit. And if it's done long enough, it will eliminate their ability to hear the Holy Spirit. See, when we perpetrate evil on other people, it sears the conscience, warps the reason, destroys the character, and as Russell is saying, it, it eventually leads to the point we can no longer even hear the Spirit of God. How about lying, stealing, embezzling? Is that is that evil? Yeah, and what does it do to the perpetrator? You notice we're starting with murder, going to violence, going to lying, stealing, embezzling. What about gossiping? 
all those came from envy and hate in the heart that you don't see. She said all those came from envy and hate that are in the heart that you don't see. And we don't see any of that in the church, do we? No gossiping in the church. Why is gossiping evil? How did Lucifer start his rebellion in heaven? What did he actually do functionally? He went around and gossiped, didn't he? Yeah, and what does gossip do to relationships? What? Yeah, it breaks them down. What does it do to the person who's gossiping? Same thing as all the other, doesn't it? Sears the conscience, warps the reason. Yeah, just damages the character. Is it evil to believe lies about God? Remember, what is evil? Anything that is anti-love resulting in death. If we believe lies about God, does that break down love and trust or does it promote love and trust? What was Satan's method of getting the angels when he was gossiping? What was he telling? He's the father of lies and he lies about God. Is it evil to tell lies about God? Because remember our text today is, let's imi- do not imitate evil, but, but what is good? Does evil doing unloving, selfish, exploitive actions have an impact on the perpetrator? Does it destroy the reason, or the conscience? Are we comfortable with this? Resulting ultimately in death if unremedied. Are we all comfortable? Is that what the Bible means when it says then that the wages of sin is death? That sin, when full grown, brings forth death? Or as it says in Psalms 34.21, evil will slay the wicked. Is that what the Bible is talking about? That evil destroys the ability to think, to reason, sears the conscience, separates us from God, and ultimately, if unremedied, results in death. If this is so, then why is it that many teach that God is the one who destroys that God inflicts death upon the wicked if, in fact, it comes from sin destroying the sinner. They're ignorant. She says they're ignorant. Would teachings that God must inflict death upon the wicked be evil? Why would it be evil? It's promoting a lie. It's promoting a lie. What does it do to your relationship with God? If you believe that the problem with sin is that now God is angry and God must kill you, Unless someone step in between you and him, his son, and pleads with him to get him to not kill you. If you actually believe that, which is commonly taught in much of Christianity, does that enhance your trust in God or does it make you want to run from him? If you say that, that drives evil away from God. So how can we avoid evil and participate in the good? Is it enough to study and know what is true? Why is intellectual understanding of the truth not enough? Because Satan had intellectual knowledge of God too. Why is intellectual understanding not enough? If somebody's a music major and they study music composition and music theory, but they never actually play any instruments. What do you think? Do you think playing an instrument, it, it, it helps their ability to, to be a musician? Or just studying about the composition and, and theory is enough? What happens? Does something different happen in the brain of a person who plays a musical instrument than a person who just studies about the theory and composition of music? Does something different happen in the brain? Any musicians in here? 
I'm not, so no musicians today, huh? There's a lot of emotion when playing music versus just studying, looking at the piece of paper that has the notes on it. I'd like to go back to what you always refer to as the medical angle of it. If I have cancer, I can study about cancer all I want, what causes it and everything else. But if I never use the remedy to get rid of it, it didn't do me any good to have the knowledge about cancer, did it? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I like it. And that's the way it is with us and God. We can have all the knowledge we want about God. If we never allow Him to put the remedy within us, which is changing us, then what good is that knowledge? And, and can we give a, a description of what the remedy is? Change of the heart. Change of the heart is what it results in. Isn't the remedy God's love? Romans 5.5, 5, when we trust God, He pours His love into our hearts. God is love, so he pours himself into our hearts. We partake of his nature, as it says in Peter. We become like him in heart and mind, so we start living love. We don't just study the theory of love. We start participating in love, yes? Yeah, so in our analogy of music, we don't just study about music. We start playing music and making music. And when that happens, neurobiologically in the brain, are things changing? Do we have not just intellectual comprehension? Do we have greater appreciation? Does our ear change? And we have a different, a different sense when we hear music being played when we're a player of music. Do we have emotional involvement? Our heart get into it. So we have not only head knowledge, we have heart knowledge. Some of you might have heard a, a, a Christian writer that wrote the following, that the study of the cross will be our science and our song through all eternity. Have you heard that before? Science, our intellectual pursuit. We will study this to understand the, the, the science behind what Christ did to achieve our salvation. That's, that's our intellectual cognitive understanding. But our song, what is that? That's our heart, our passion, our emotion. It will be an integrated whole. Are we to be pursuing that now as we experience what a participation in the good. Is it enough just to understand it intellectually, or do we need to be practicing it, putting it into practice? And we act on what we understand. Does it make a different change in us mentally, neurologically? Yes? I can hear chords. I can hear music in my head, but if I don't put it out with my fingers, I don't receive the blessing that I do by playing. And, and it, if I'm feeling down, it can sure make a difference. Do you ever notice that the words that you speak have power to react upon you? Yes. Yeah, speaking it out loud is different than just thinking it in your mind. Playing it out loud, taking a love into action and doing it makes a different change than just thinking about doing it. Somebody read the two paragraphs in Sabbath's lesson called Beginning Power Struggles. Power struggles come in various forms, whether over the rulership of empires, over companies, or even our religious position and authority. The fight for control can be ugly, even violent. In a real sense, the great controversy in heaven began with the power struggle. Satan seeking the position and authority that belonged only to Jesus, the creator, and not to the creature. Unfortunately, even in the church, the same spirit can be manifested. Third final letter in this series deals with the power struggle in one of the early churches. On one side of the are the Apostle John, Gaius, and Demetrius. On the other side is Diotrephes. 
who is trying to establish his supremacy, power struggle in the local church. Certainly, as Christians today, we don't face anything similar, do we? Do we have power struggles in the church? Yes. <laughs> Why? What is the basis of power struggles in the church? Self. Selfishness? Okay. What does the Bible reveal about God's power? And what power does God use to win the war? Love, truth, what else? Freedom. Freedom. Oh, the big three right off the bat. Love, truth, and freedom. Yeah. Romans chapter 116, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. The gospel, what is the gospel? Good news. Good news about? Well, uh, keep, keep in mind, what is the good news? Let's go to the next text, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. It says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war like the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly weapons. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Notice what we demolish. Every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. So what weapons are being used? The weapons of the gospel, which is, is divine power to demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What? Hmm. Think about that as we look at Ephesians six thirteen through 18, about the weapons we use in our spiritual war- warfare. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, with, the, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions." What are the weapons we use? We're thinking about how do we deal with conflict? How did God deal with conflict? When Lucifer began his rebellion in heaven, what weapons did God hit him with? Lightning bolts? Flaming swords? We demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Why then does it take so long? I mean, the Almighty, the Creator, the one with all power, omniscient, omnipotent, all these things. Why is it taking so long for Him to finish a war with a creature? Because He leaves His other creatures free to make a decision based on the evidence that's presented. Where does sin occur? Heart and minds of God's intelligent creatures. Where is God working to eliminate sin from? heart and minds of his intelligent creatures. What is the only way to eradicate out of your heart and your mind fear and distrust of God? Can he do it by exercising might and power? You better trust me or else. Truth presented in love, leaving you free. This is why it takes so long. This is why God is not slow in keeping his promises, but he's not wanting anyone to be lost. God has been revealing truth, be revealing truth. And in fact, if, if God was the kind of being Satan says he is, a, a, a power monger, one who arbitrarily inflicts penalties, one who abuses his creatures, if that was the kind of person God is, what would have happened as soon as Lucifer tried his rebellion? God would have squashed him. The, it's really kind of weird to think of, but the fact that Lucifer's rebellion was able to go on is evidence that Lucifer's a liar. 
Because it wouldn't go on if God was that kind of person. You see, dictators like Stalin, Amin, and, and so forth, Hitler, do not allow dissension. Do not allow questions to arise in their government. They squash all opposition with the use of might and power. God didn't use might and power to squash opposition. He let people free. Why did he leave us free? What is it God wants from you? He wants love and love. Love. Yeah, she said love and love cannot be forced. In a dating relationship with the college students in here, remember that. If you want someone to love you, don't try and pressure them. Love cannot be forced. It can only be won and freely given. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, This is one of the few letters in the New Testament, along with Philemon, First and Second Timothy, and Titus, that are addressed to an individual person, not to a congregation. And then it goes on to talk about the authority that comes uh, from this letter. If you read on down to the next paragraph, it talks about the title points to respect to respect an authority which would do its holder, the title of elder being used in the letter. What do you think of the idea that if you get a letter in the mail coming from the desk of a person containing a certain title, does that thereby connote that what the letter contains is authoritative? Hmm. See, earthly governments... Earthly governments delegate authority and, and by the rank that the person holds, the position the person holds, the title the person holds, this is how we delegate authority. Is that how God's government works? Because we often take how we understand authority here. You get a letter from the president of the general conference or from the pope or from your pastor or the head elder and it's got some certain instructions in there to you. Do you. Is that authoritative? We understand authority by position. Yes? Uh, a few months ago, I got a letter from the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> <laughs> an authoritative letter. It had a stamp and, and all these things saying that I owed around $8,000 in unpaid taxes. Um, I went back over, reviewed the tax returns, and found out that it was a mistake. And I sent them the proof. Uh, and the issue was resolved. The point is that what was stated in the letter, the authoritative letter, was not true. Okay. And earthly governments work this way, don't they? And if you couldn't convince them, what would have happened? I'd have been on the hook for eight grand. That's right. That's right. So let's see if this is how God's government works. Notice the difference between Christ's use of authority or pursuit of authority and Satan's use or pursuit of authority. In Philippians 2, 5-8 through 8, it says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Is he holding to position for his authority? No, notice. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he found himself in the appearance of a man, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Did he have position that was rightfully his? Did he use that position as his right to rule? Did he exercise his rightful authority over his subjects? Or did he surrender that voluntarily for what purpose? What was he trying to achieve in laying down his crown and his scepter of, of, of rightful rule? For what purpose? 
to reach out and win his creation to himself. All things in heaven and earth will be reconciled to Christ at the cross, it says in Colossians 1, 18-20. All things in heaven and in earth reconciled, drawing things back to him. At the end, all things will be under one head, even Jesus Christ. How is that? By force of God's authority. I am the supreme commander of the universe and I order you to surrender to Christ. Or does Christ win us to devotion and loyalty? Notice the difference in how Lucifer tried it in Isaiah 14, 13 through 15. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in throne on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. What is he trying to do? Occupy a rank, a seat, a throne, a position. This is how the earthly governments work. Do we ever find ourselves taking this view of authority that, we, that the world works on, that Satan works on, and projecting that back on God and seeing that God runs his universe authoritatively like this? Yes? Well, I just find it interesting that all through history, if you look at some of the greatest rulers, they won their people through kindness. They won their people through affection. They won their people through being good. But we don't tend to focus on those. We focus on the Stalins and the Hitlers and the people who ruled with the iron fist. But those people were ruled out of fear. And some of the most powerful rulers on the planet have ruled through love. And it worked because of that. So why do we focus on... And I'm saying that to myself too because I do tend to sometimes look at God as a dictator and and I kind of wish, you know, he would just go ahead and smite everybody and we could go to heaven, <laughs> you know, because I'm tired of living here. But why do you think we tend to focus on the power, on the powerful instead of the love aspect? Thoughts? Why do we focus on power instead of love? Because in a simple world, power is what works. Yeah, and what does it say? And the things of God are foolishness to the world. People with a worldly mindset don't look at that and it doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever. How can I get more by giving? Don't I get more by taking and hoarding? It doesn't make sense that emptying self, giving away all that I have, you know, the more you give, the more you shall receive. This is the principle of love, other-centeredness, giving, and the more you give, the more flows back to you. But that doesn't make sense to a worldly mind. The worldly mind is, no, I get more by taking from you. I also think, like, when we, our concepts of love are so different, too, you know, like, when people are like, oh, where's the love? You know, I think of, like, the hippie movement or something, you know, like, our concept of, of love, or the, even the term or the use of love is so, like, distorted. And even when people do you love today, it's not God's love, which is the real love. Yeah, I, I, everybody agree with that, don't we? That's absolutely true. We have this twisted idea of what love is. We have this like sentimentalism thing about love rather than a truly other-centered, self-sacrificing uh, beneficence to other people. In the middle of the lesson, it asks, how do we understand what it means as Christians to love each other? Right on time. How do we show that love? Putting their interests above our interests putting their interest above our interest. How do we practically, as a class, here in this community, how do we put that love into action in real life? Being sure they eat only veggie food? No. Oh. <laughs> Sometimes they have 
So ministering to real physical needs that someone has? Yes. Pick the best of them instead of, not the worst, but when you come across somebody you don't know, don't put up the defenses. Realize they're a brother or a sister. I like what you're saying because if you heard what he's saying, he's talking about, have you met people and after spending a little time with them, you had the real sense that they cared about you. And if you met people that were spending a little time with them, you had a real sense that they cared about themselves. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things, when Christ went places, do you think people knew he cared about them? Now, that, that doesn't mean he did everything for all people. But he cared about them. Some people wouldn't let him do things for him, remember? There was some, somebody went to Nazareth and he couldn't hardly do any miracles there at all. But he still cared about them. He wanted to tell his disciples quite a few things, remember, after his resurrection. Man, I have so much I want to tell you guys, but you guys can't handle it. You can't handle it. Do you think he says that to us today? I have so much I want to tell you all. I want, I want to enlighten your mind. I want to, I want to remove the darkness. I, I, want to, I want to let you to see the, what heaven is all about. But you guys can't handle it. Why have you been more effective on the road to Emmaus if people had known who he was? Would he have been? Or, or maybe he'd been less effective. Now we have two options here. One is the option that Christ took, which was he just walked with them, and what did he actually do for them? He expounded the scriptures. He took them to the word and let them see the the biblical evidences. And, and, And through the evidences of scripture, did their hearts burn within them when truth was revealed? Were they persuaded by the evidence of, of, of Bible truth? That's one option. The other option is for him to pop up as a, as the Messiah, full of light and power and say, it is I, the risen savior, believe in me. I think they would have been equally thrilled. Would there have been a difference, though, in what happened in them? He wouldn't have engaged their thinking then. It would have overwhelmed them, and they would have bypassed the thinking. Bypassed the thinking? Um, is, is, there a time, is, is there a time coming when an angel of light is going to come, purporting to be Christ? It is I, your Messiah has returned! Well, if we take the approach that we, that's what we're looking for, and we don't go to Scripture, might we be duped? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, right here. I think he was still doing that. I mean, a lot of times it's the little things. He was giving them all they needed to know, and he was doing it in a way where in the future they could go back to the scriptures and puzzle things out for themselves. Because if he had just manifested himself, yes, that would have been powerful. Yes, they would have believed, but then they would have had self-doubt in the future. I love what she said. They would go out and puzzle things out for themselves. What does that? What happens in a person, in each of you, when you wrestle with the problem, asking the Spirit to enlighten, you search the Scriptures, you, you work through an issue, when you come to a, an, an insight, what happens in you? Is it different than if somebody just tells you the answer? Yes. What Christ wants for us is that growth in character, in wisdom, in capacity for, for discernment, in weighing issues. That cannot be given to you. That can only be developed by personal Bible study, struggle with issues, problem solving. Yes. Not just for their own benefit. I mean, appearing before them would also greatly lessen their ability to evangelize and uh, convince others of the truth. I, I, excellent. Yes. I was going to say the same because... If they would just see the miracle of you know, something, then he would be appearing in the fire, 
they they wouldn't be able to to share the priest with anyone else because anyone else would say, hey, we need to see the saint. When he showed them something that they could share, they, they would say, you know, just open your Bible. You, know, you can find this truth in there. And so one of the reasons we name our class Come in Reason is because I'm not here to tell any of you what to think. I'm here to stimulate you to go and think and reason and weigh these things out for yourself so that you come to your own understanding, as it says in Romans 14, 5, every person fully persuaded in their own mind, or Hebrews 5, 14, the mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. But I'm here just to stimulate you to weigh this stuff out so you develop that ability for yourself. Yes? I was just going to say that there are people, even in Christ's time, who knew the scriptures by heart. They'd studied them and memorized them. And in our day, we have people like that who study the Torah and they have a special time when they're 13 or whenever where they repeat all these words. And um, even in our three notes message, we read the words of how God is going to, with his wrath, uh, he will torment with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, the presence of the Lamb. And we read these words, and do we understand what we're reading? That's, I think, the big problem is we can read and read and read, but unless we are open to the Holy Spirit leading us in what we're reading, how do we understand it? And, and not only open to the Holy Spirit, that, that, what that means is that we're willing to say to ourselves, wait a minute, what does that really mean? Does that make sense? Would a God of love actually come back and torment and torture his, his, his creatures that he loves? That's our message. That's our three angels' message. It's the heart of it. I mean, that's, it's right there. And what do we do with it? So, so one of the principles of proper Bible study is not simply what does the Bible say, but we always want to start there. Does the Bible actually say what somebody says it says? So let's check it out. Yep, it's there. Then we go on. Okay, now that we know the Bible says it, what does it actually mean? And this is where a lot of people break down. That's why it's so hard to talk to people in our church, especially because this is what we're preaching right there. And they have their hearts set on that message, and there's no way you can get through to them. Yeah, and that message is in the middle of a book that is completely literal in every way. Right. (laughs) Or is that book a very symbolic book? Symbols all over the place. And so we have to step back and say, okay... Why is it that this little section here we want to take absolutely literal in every way, but everything else around it is all symbolic? Yeah, let me just make one more point. Jesus stood in the synagogue and he read from the scriptures to the people and they wanted to stone him. So even Jesus reading the word doesn't make any difference sometimes. Because? Because they're not hearing the word. They're deaf. So he said, he who has an eye, let him see. His ears, let him hear. So it has to do with the attitude of the person. We want to develop hearts that are lovers of what's true. We want to pursue truth. We want to say, Lord, this is my understanding today, but I'm finite. You're infinite. There's a huge gap between you and me. Help me understand more truth today and tomorrow and the next day. I want to be a lover of what's true, growing every day, so that my knowledge and perspectives are constantly expanding for all eternity. And the hereafter, it will never come a time when you aren't going to be learning more truth. God is infinite. We're finite. It's a, a perpetual journey towards intimacy with God that never ends. It's fun. It's always the same thing. I mean, truth doesn't change. And people think that truth is how you feel or what your spirit is telling you. But truth is always truth. It's always what God is. God is truth. It, I mean, we may not know all the truth, but truth is always the same. Yes, over here. 
I agree with her that truth is truth, but truth is also always progressive. It's revealing. Because we understand the death of Jesus, don't we? But you read a statement that that will be our study through our eternity. We will always be learning more. We'll always be learning more. In, uh, let's go to Wednesday's lesson. Verse 12, it talks about Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. And I want to talk about this verse. Is there a difference between being spoken well of by everyone and being spoken well of by the truth itself? Is there a difference? Which do you prefer? And you better think carefully before you answer me on this one. I have patients in my office all the time who are constantly worried about what people think of them. They go through the corridors of school or work and they worry that people will think they're stupid or think that they're incapable or think that they're not competent or think that they're not attractive or think that they're not wise or think that they're fat or think that they're ugly. And they worry constantly about what people think of them. Their fear, they're preoccupied. They have their, their social radar up when they go into a room, scanning the environment to get the, the nonverbal perceptions of people to try and figure out what people are thinking of them and then try to respond to that thinking. Worried about what people think. And I ask them, if you could be a person whom everyone thinks well of, you're esteemed, you're looked up to, you're valued, that's, oh man, that's you, you're here, we're so glad you're here. That's what people think good of you, everywhere you go, but in heart... You're like Satan. You're a deceiver. You're a conniver. You're a manipulator. Conversely, if you had the option of being like Christ in heart, but just like Christ, the majority of people hate you and want to kill you, which would you take? You see, for some of my patients, that's not an easy answer. Cognitively, they go, well, I know I'd rather be like Christ, but I, I, I don't function there. They're so vulnerable to what people think of them. And one of the things we have to do is shift our our sense of internal stability, wellness, confidence, away from opinions of people to the truth itself. Who am I? Am I living a life that God would have me live? Building my sense of confidence and well-being on the truth. Yes. We speak of uh, being thought well of it, and you have to consider the source. I mean, I knew a man who was a, an alcoholic, and he was very destructive, and his family stopped eating it. And yet when he died, the uh, funeral home was full. And it's like, oh, considering the source of who's thinking well of you. I think that's a perfect segue into the little section at the bottom in green. It says, imagine someone giving a report about you and your Christian behavior. What would that person write about you and why? Anybody want to come up here and... No, I didn't think so. Um, but um, but the, what, was, what Marilyn just said is exactly right. If someone write, writes a report about you, what do you learn from that report? First and foremost, what you learn from that report is what the other person thinks. You're learning something about the way their mind works. You're learning something about their perceptions, their perspectives, their attitudes, their belief systems. Christ said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that report is sharing what's in their heart about you. It may or may not have any accurate reflection about you. So the first thing you learn in the report is about the other person. What kind of report would Satan write about Jesus, Christian witness? He, he, he said a lot of negative things about it. Everything was negative about it. 
Well, I'm going to read to you out of Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. He sought to cast his shadow across the earth, that men might lose the true views of God's character, that the knowledge of God might become extinct on the earth. He had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it had lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belonged to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. What kind of report does Satan write about God? A false report. How many people and preachers and teachers and Christians present things? The Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. You don't hear that? What is one of the allegations? Satan said, God is arbitrary. If we stand up and say the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience, well, we're promoting Satan's report about God. Or God, in order to be just, must make you pay in the flames and make you suffer. Wait, he takes pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. There are attributes that belong to the character of Satan. The evil one represents that belong to the character of God. Notice this powerful statement out of first selected messages, page 183. The Lord is constantly at work to open the understanding, to quicken the perceptions. What's he trying to do? Come, let us reason together. He wants you to comprehend. He wants to open your mind. To quicken the perceptions that man may have a right sense of sin and the far-reaching claims of God's law. Now listen to this. The unconverted man thinks of God as unloving, as severe, and as revengeful. His presence is thought to be a constant restraint. His character is expression of thou shalt not. For the unconverted man, this is how they see God. His service is is regarded as full of gloom and hard requirements. But when Jesus is seen upon the cross as the gift of God because he loved man, the eyes are opened to see things in a new light. God, as revealed in Christ, is not a severe judge, an avenging tyrant, but a merciful and loving father. Who sees God in this other way? The unconverted man. So when you are at church and you hear from the pulpit that God is severe and revengeful, one who says, thou shalt not, who is a severe judge and an avenging tyrant. One of the founders of our church says that such presentations come from those who are unconverted. Do you recognize that when you hear it? Have you been converted to the truth about God that Jesus revealed so that you see Him as a merciful and loving Father? That's how we're to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. The Father and I are one. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ was an exact representation of the Father. Do we believe it? Yes. I think where that stems from is mostly the Old Testament, where if people just cursorily read it, they think they see a God who's just say, kill all them, kill all those, stone everybody who does anything wrong, and that's the God they think the God is. Again, we're back to that whole reading it without comprehending it. We must understand the meaning beyond the words, right? Yes, when we read Scripture, we must understand the meaning beyond the words. 
third paragraph in Monday's lesson. What we see here deals not just with hospitality, not just with giving someone a place to sleep for the night, but with the whole principle of support for the work of ministry and missions. John is thankful that Gaius has treated these people as he has. It shows his openness and willingness to give up himself for the work of spreading the gospel. In this sense, Gaius should be an example to us all. The Lord has chosen us as believers to spread the truth to the whole world. Do we agree that we need to be spreading the gospel? The question is, what, what gospel? What gospel are we spreading? Is every message about Jesus Christ that goes to the Word the gospel? When world radio gets on there and talks about Jesus, when certain satellite television programs broadcast messages about the sanctuary, is that necessarily presenting the gospel? One of the most interesting things I ever, you know, that Jesus said, he was mostly kind and and so on, except to the Pharisees who were the hard-hearted ones, and he was so scathing to them at some point because of their... They, he said, you, you travel the world trying to find converts, and when you find them, you make them twice the son of hell that you are yourselves, which I think we need to take notice of. Yeah, well, and think that through. Now, in Christ's day, what was the organized body on earth to evangelize the world that had been blessed with the prophets, the feast days, the health message, the sanctuary message? Everything had been blessed. What was that organized body? The Jewish nation. Jesus even said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews when she questioned what, where should we worship and how should we worship. Yet, he tells them when you convert somebody, you make them twice the son of hell. How could that be? If they're the, the chosen body to evangelize, how could being be converted to that body make you twice the son of hell as when you're outside the body? Because you need to be converted to Christ and not to Oh, you need to be diverted to Christ and the message of Christ. And, and we look into Revelation that that last remnant group of people uh, hold to the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus, which is the red leather books, right? No. If you read the 19 text, it says the, in some versions that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Other versions say the testimony of Jesus is the message of the spirit that inspired the prophets. What was Jesus' testimony about? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 17, 4 and 5. Father, I finished the work you've given me to do. I have made you known unto men. Do we hold to Jesus' testimony that when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father? That everything that is true about Jesus is true about the Father. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ Bodily. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to Himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son, but gave Him up, how will He not along with Him also give us all things? I mean, do we see the message? Do we hold to this message? Because this is not the message that Christianity commonly takes to the world. The message of Christianity is, Father is a righteous and wrathful God who is angry over sin and must mete out retributive justice. His Son came to take our place, and and the full wrath of the Father is poured out on His Son. And now the Son is in heaven pleading His blood, My blood, my blood, Father, please be merciful. Now, do you see those two beings in that construct as the same? We have a kind and loving Savior who sacrifices Himself to save us. And we have an angry, wrathful being who needs to be pled with in order to be kind and merciful. Are they the same? It's a distortion. It's paganism gussied up in Christian garb. We need to take the gospel to the world. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. How do we support the gospel besides tithes and offerings? How do we support the spread of the gospel besides tithes and offerings? Jesus said with sheep and the goats. Oh, Dean is pointing to our online website ministry. And that would be a time to tell you, Dean this week, our webmaster over here, just opened up a new online discussion forum that you can get online and discuss with people. We already had somebody from Africa, Zimbabwe, already on our website and starting to, to dialogue. So feel free to, to participate. We have website cards in the back. So that's one way we, we can spread the gospel through our online ministry. Other ways. The most powerful way to spread the gospel is through example. People see that you are different. You don't have to say, you need to know the three angels message or you need to know about Daniel and the Revelation. If you live your life a Christ-like life, you stand out from the world. Can we say it better than that? Jesus that's, that's beautiful. Jesus said when the sheep and goats left and right, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. As we do it unto the least of these, we do it unto Christ. So loving, back to the whole loving thing. Love we receive from Christ. and it is, Remember the Michael W. Smith song? It isn't love until you give it away. It isn't love until you give it away. You can't just receive love for it to be love. You have to give it away for it to be love. That's, that's a great song. It's the truth. The remarkable thing is that you started this lesson, at least when I walked in, talking about evil and the death that comes to the... Isn't it ironic that as we are now talking about love, Jesus knows that as we express love, it's not the recipient that is so blessed, but the one who is changed from within as they express that love. Uh, he knows that secret that we're still trying to figure out. Thank you. That is so awesome. And that is so true. As we love others, we actually get a greater blessing than the person that we're loving. And I can tell you as a teacher, I get a greater blessing preparing the lesson each week than you get from listening to it. Any teachers in the room? Come on, tell me the truth, teachers. When you prepare the lessons to teach, don't you learn more in preparing the lesson to teach than the students learn from you? And if you've ever been on both sides of the equation, I always learn more preparing a lesson than I learn sitting in a class listening to a lesson. Is that not right? Yeah, I see a lot of heads nodding in here. The same thing is true. When you love other people, you get a greater blessing than simply being the object of someone's love. Tuesday's lesson, Diotrephes. At the top of the lesson, it asks us to read Mark 9.35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. Thoughts about the meaning. We just read the words. What about the meaning? Well, that's what the universe is. Everyone more concerned with other people than they are about themselves, which is what makes the universe a safe to be. Here, we're always on guard. Let somebody steal from you, hurt you, take your reputation, break in, whatever. We can't even imagine a world where you don't have to fear anybody, where nobody, everybody's, your welfare is more important to everybody that you meet than it is to yourself. Talking about leadership again in class today. What, what kind of leadership is Christ describing here? That servant type of leadership. Servant leadership. Remember he said in Matthew 16, 25, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Think through the meaning of that. Think through our natural inclinations, our human heart. How instinctual is it for you to watch out to save yourself? How deeply wired into you is that? 
That is the infection. That is the carnal nature. Watch out for number one. Protect self at all costs. This is why we die to self in order to give our lives for others. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is. Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. Russell. I like to talk about the irony in this. Say if anyone wants to be first, I mean, if someone really wanted to be first, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be willing to, to be last or to serve. I'm wondering if, if he's saying this with a smile on his face or, or with a hint of wit. Yeah, or is he saying, if you want to be first in my kingdom, he's talking about what first looks like in his kingdom, you're the first to serve, the first to love, the first in action to meet the needs of another. You're not seeking first in the sense of aggrandizing self on the throne, but first, hey, hey, there's somebody in need of that. Well, let me, let me. You're going to be first. If you want to be the first, then you need to serve. Who is in his audience? The The disciples. Right. You have the power struggle going on in the room already. And I think he was directing this comment to these people who were already wondering who's going to get to be first in line here and first in line there. And he's saying, your focus is wrong. It's not actually about being first. It's about changing their focus. You need to focus on what you can give, not what you can receive. Well, they were looking very much at worldly authority that we talked about already today. They saw authority as something that comes with power that you take from people. And they they were expecting Christ to take the throne, throw off the Romans. And James and John's mom had already come in and said, Can my son sit at the right and the left? And the rest of the disciples go, Whoa, hold on, we've been vying for those spots. (laughs) <laughs> because they see the, the earthly mechanism of authority and power. I think your, your point is right on. And Christ saying, you guys don't get it. And he gets up, washes their feet, says, as I've done for you, so do for each other. Yes. So is it a decision or is it emotionally we want to do that? Is what a decision? Or to wash somebody's feet or do we do it because it's the right thing? We, I don't know if you necessarily want to do that, but it's the right thing to do. Actually, it's, it's all. It is all. It may start, it generally starts with first the truth enlightening your mind so you understand what your duty is. And then it goes to applying that by choice. And lastly, it comes to where you experience the emotional joy of doing it. But the emotions generally are the last thing that you experience after you've already implemented the truth in your life. Yes. People generally wait for the emotional change to implement the truth in their life. And this is why it says in James chapter 1, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted and we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Satan holds power over us by our emotions and feelings. And when we let our emotions and feelings paint the landscape of our duty, then we usually follow Satan's path. When we let the truth, John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. The truth leads us in a different direction. We are always, we will always in the, in the process of spiritual growth find ourselves periodically at times where we are faced with decisions between what's true and what our feelings want to do. We always will. And the, and the path of duty and the path of truth requires an exercise of the choice or the will to, to stay true to duty, stay, stay true to principle, even if it doesn't feel good in the moment. And then the emotions shortly thereafter will follow in suit behind and you'll have great peace and great joy. This is a great question.
in 3 John 9 and 10, it talks about Diotrephes, who loves to be the first, have nothing to do, and will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome his brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Notice the, the leadership style here. What kind of style of leadership is being practiced? Dictatorial, authoritative. I'm in charge, and I will decide who is a member of this organization and who is not. What impact does controlling leadership like this have on the body of believers that fellowship under that leadership? If someone, for instance, takes it upon themselves to fire the the pastors uh, uh, that work for them and and the elders and the deacons and put the people they want in place and and this type of thing, rather than a a consensus of of the body, what happens to this type of dictatorial leadership? causes the dark ages. She's exactly right. It causes the dark ages. That's exactly right. If this leadership began to be practiced here, those who are thinkers, those who will not be told by another, you will think this and you will do that, will leave if they have the freedom to leave. Those who won't surrender their integrity and compromise principle won't stay in an organization like that. Who stays behind? Those who don't know how to think and reason for themselves. Those who are afraid to think and reason for themselves. Those who look for somebody who they think is wiser and smarter and stronger to tell them what you think will stay behind. Um, We see this in cults. Cult leaders practice this. And what happens to the minds of those who stay in such an organization? They're destroyed. Individuality is destroyed. Ability to think and reason. We don't grow up to the full stature of sons and daughters of God in such type leadership styles. Does it have to be in cults for this to be practiced? Or it can happen in Christian churches? Yeah. Thursday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, According to this letter, the problem concerned not so much theology, but rather personal ambition and, and a change in how churches were governed. Well, not so much a crisis in theology, but a personal ambition. Let me ask you something. Can you have a crisis of personal ambition without a problem in theology? No, you can't. Why? By beholding, we become changed. We actually become like the God we worship. And if somebody actually esteems and worships Jesus Christ, who surrendered himself, didn't think equality with God was something he would grasp, but surrendered himself all the way to the cross, who got down on his knees and washed the feet of disciples, if, if that is your, is your vision of holiness and godliness and leadership, then will you begin practicing these other methods? No. You have to have a different God construct. Your God construct has to be one who has power and authority and is going to rule with a rod, uh, an iron rod and is going to exact his will upon his creatures. Then you can practice those things. There's always a synergy here. Yes? Wasn't that Judas's issue? He saw Jesus that she, Jesus should be the leader, I think, that Judas thought he was. And he sought to actually enforce that through power, make him, force him to take the forefront by putting him in a position where he had to show people who he really was. I don't think he appreciated a lowly leader who was going around washing his feet. He wanted to push him into prominence. I think you're exactly right. And so each one of us have to decide. When you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at the scriptures, when you look at how God has revealed himself to us in his word, what God do you see? 
What leadership style do you see God practicing? Even though He is all-powerful, even though He is omniscient, even though he, He is the creator of all things, do you see Him exercising His right his, his power, His authority? Or do you see Him surrendering all of those things to win you based on the worthiness of His character of love alone? And thus the Bible says, God is power? No. God is love. And it is the character of His love that wins us to loyalty and wins the rest of the universe to loyalty. And we will all be under one head, not because He has angels with fiery swords keeping everybody in line through alternity, but because all hearts, all minds of all intelligent creatures in the hereafter have been won to permanent loyal devotion to Him by the revelation of His character of love. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that even though You are all-powerful, even though that it is your legal right, if you should so desire to exercise it, to command our worship, that you want us to love you. And so rather than exercising your authority from a throne on high, you set aside your crown. You set aside your scepter. You stepped down and humbled yourself and took upon yourself our sick condition. You let us mock you and make fun of you and torture you and beat you and you surrendered all the way to death to help us see that even though you're all-powerful, you will never, ever use your power to hurt us. In fact, you've been working to save us. May the lies be purged from our minds. May we see you as you revealed yourself in Christ and become your loving and faithful witnesses here on earth. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.